when people walk through that door, know what they're gonna know, know the questions they're gonna ask, and have the answer prepared. Never stutter and stammer. Have the answers, and 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 know how to deal them, and smile and say hi. Why is it so hard for managers or administrators to understand that their success is based on the productivity of the people under them? Why is that hard to that concept hard to grasp? I don't understand it. I never would have been successful. Coach, you are listening to the voices of experience. Almost 160 years combined life experience as well as professional experience. Now, the two gentlemen you're listening to are not college coaches. I'll introduce you to them shortly and tell you more about their backgrounds, but you'll want to listen to what their observations have been over the course of two very successful careers and how it can impact you in your recruiting efforts as you deal with this generation of college athlete prospects. It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, crime-fighting barber and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Coach, you know, one of the things that I like to do here on this podcast, the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast, is to bring outside voices into the conversation. So much of your life revolves around athletics and people within college athletics, within your department, your fellow coaches. They're all great resources. I take nothing away from them. And in fact, of course, we have had many of them on this program. But one of the things I love to do is bring outsiders into the conversation to learn from them and apply their lessons in life and their professional experience into your role as a college recruiter because there is so much to learn in the outside world and apply the things that uh, that other people learn in their careers into your coaching and recruiting career. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, and a little bit of a backstory to the two gentlemen that you heard in the introduction of the podcast. Uh, these two gentlemen are my uncles, uh, Uncle Max Tudor and Uncle Jack Stahl. Now, uh, Max is my uh, dad's brother, and Jack is married to my dad's sister. Now, my father passed away uh, going on eight years ago, so whenever I'm around them, it's sort of a connection to uh, the man that is no longer in my life. And it's just wonderful being around them. And we had the occasion of being around them for several days this past summer during a family reunion, which was also uh, part of a celebration for my aunt's 80th birthday. And, and so just sitting around and talking to them, I made the observation to uh, to my cousin, uh, Tim Tudor, who was in attendance, uh, and and mentioned that well, these guys have so much experience, so much life experience, you need to just sit down and record them so that your kids and, and the rest of the family can learn from them. And I thought, you know what, I better do that too, because there's a lot of wisdom here. And anytime you get somebody with their backgrounds and their experience and their levels of success that you, can, yeah, that you can get advice from, you just jump at that chance. So you're going to learn some things and and think about some things that I'll bet you've never thought about as college coaches that you can apply in the way that you 
approach your prospects and their parents, but even how you structure your program and how you lead your team and one, some of the things that, that fall through the cracks, but that great leaders remember and make sure they implement in their daily lives. A little bit of background uh, on, on each gentleman you're going to hear. Um, the first uh, that you're going to hear is Jack Stahl. And he has a really interesting background that, uh, and by the way, neither one of these have been college coaches. So just to, to get out, to get that out in, uh, out in the front, but, uh, Jack Stahl, uh, and his wife, Janet, my aunt had for decades, a very successful, um, a very successful business where they would travel and, and do workshops and seminars on sewing and patterns. This is back in uh, starting in the, the 1970s and going into the 1980s. And uh, my aunt was sort of nationally known as this really great seamstress and would sell clothing patterns. And so they would go to fabric stores and, and outlets and teach these seminars to people that are interested in that. And Jack was involved on the marketing side and the sales side. So I wanted to tap his knowledge of interacting with customers and how to set up the ability or the, the, uh, the, the atmosphere that is good for, uh, for conducting sales and to make a sale. Because at the core, Coach, you're involved in making sales. You are selling your program and there's that transaction that has to happen for them to become more than just a prospect or a recruit, but actually then part of your program. And so I really wanted to lean on Jack's expertise in in conducting that because, you know, they had to make it work. They were basically inventing an industry themselves and it grew very successful because they knew how to sell. And Jack was sort of the cornerstone of that. Uh, and so I wanted to talk to him and uh, get his expertise to, to pass along to all of you. So that'll be the first conversation you hear. The second gentleman you're going to hear from is my uncle Max Tudor, who has really spent his life involved in education, and as well as you know, education here in the U.S., yes, but most of it has occurred overseas. He has been the superintendent and leader at several international schools around the world. Um, Mexico City was, uh, was one, and in Madrid, Spain, he was there for a very, very long time. Uh, he and my aunt were were friends of the king and queen of Spain, and 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 involved in running the school that really most of the diplomats would send their kids to in Madrid. So uh, he had to be very successful. And then he also worked for testing companies after returning to the states, uh, and was involved in that. So uh, a lot of experience in education, but also leading people because when. When he was running these institutions, he had to be an effective leader, especially to stay in it as long as he did. And so I wanted to lean on him and sort of pick his brain on what worked for him from a leadership standpoint and building a staff and keeping them motivated. So each gentleman that you're going to hear from are bring different things to the table and are going to, I think, contribute different things to the conversation that... Uh, that that you might want to listen in on and be a part of. So we're going to start with my uncle Jack first on the sales and marketing side, and then we'll move to leadership with Max Tudor after that. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. Both of these gentlemen are uh, approaching 80 years old, and so uh, a lot of experience and a lot of wealth of knowledge that you can 
kind of steal from them in this conversation that we're going to have here on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. So let me introduce you to Jack Stahl first. So start me at 1950 and walk me through quickly all the jobs you've had since 1950. Okay, from 1950 through 1956, I had a paper route with the Detroit News. My dad was the district manager and he got me the best paper route in the whole district and the whole Detroit area. And I took advantage of it and did well, paid all my own expenses all the way up through high school. Okay, and then high school and what, anything, what'd you do in high school? Oh, through the that was the paper route through high school. Yeah, that got me. As far as work goes. Yeah. And then when I played sports, I had somebody take care of my paper route for me. Okay, baseball, football, and hockey. Right, okay. okay. All right, no college. No college. What did you do right after high school? I went to work with my, uh, I went to work training my dad's racehorses. He was in the racehorse business, had five horses, and I liked everything to do with sports, and these were racehorses, so I went to work uh, handling my dad's horses and I traveled the country for a couple years came to Shafter California with Joe O'Brien the number one trainer in the country and the first day I was in uh, Shafter I met I, <coughs> I met my wife Janet your aunt and uh, married her a couple years later but I stayed with the horses for a couple years until we had our daughter Stacy and then we couldn't I couldn't travel the country anymore so uh, I had a connection or Janet did through her family her uncle got us a job managing variety stores so we managed variety stores for eight years dealt with people learned how to merchandise thousands of items and most of all learned how to handle people and that got us started on our way and then across town a fabric store was for sale and my wife liked liked to sew and I knew that was a growing business so we bought the fabric store we we had saved our money we just rented uh, apartments saved our money for a few years bought this fabric store and built the fabric store business and do a very profitable thing and we sold the fabric stores after six years and we went on the road with my wife's sewing seminars and we hooked up with all the major chains throughout the United States and and did very well for 16 years. We traveled the country, working six months a year. We had traveled in a motorhome. So, without a college education, pretty successful, built a good a good life. But in the time that I've known you, it always comes back to people and knowing how to relate to people. So, what can you remember some of the early lessons you learned about? either connecting with people or relating to them or sort of getting them to, to sort of do what you wanted them to do, whether that was in management or if it was a customer that walked into the store. What Do you remember some early lessons, The first, some of the first things you remember learning? 
When I first went to work in the variety store business, my dad told me, when people walk through that door, know what they're gonna, know, know the questions they're gonna ask and have the answer prepared. Never stutter and stammer, have the answers and, and, and know how to deal them and smile and say hi. So that's what we did for uh, we uh, we through the uh, through our seminar business. We had to deal with all the the heads of these huge companies, and we had to say the right things, and we had to make sure they made money. And by doing that, they we were able to make even more money because they we could sell merchandise that the company didn't carry. Right. So, would it be fair to say then that, and I'm relating this now to college coaches because they have people walk in their doors, prospects, their families looking at the school, they're a little bit interested. You had mentioned having the answers prepared ahead of time, knowing what they're going to ask or maybe even what they're going to challenge you on. Um, So, what is the, how did you go about learning that, that part of it? How did you... How did you basically basically make that list of of things that you needed to know and just kind of walk somebody through that that maybe is hearing that idea for the first time? I knew from uh, uh, my eight years in the variety store business and I knew from owning our own business, you had to say what the people want to hear. And if I was a college recruiter, I would know exactly the questions with the parents that the kids were going to ask and I would have the answers and I'd make them sound good. <laughs> All right, but but you're not saying you lied to them. You're just saying that you you uh, if, for instance, if it wasn't the right fabric they, for a project that they were wanting, if it, if they were looking at a fabric that wasn't yeah. r- correct, know that and guide them to one that that would be correct yeah. even, it might even be a little more expensive i mean is that sort of the the principle no but we would <laughs> no <laughs> i'm completely wrong i like that okay we could tell all our customers were women my wife was an expert at giving sewing seminars and i was uh, through my experience i was an expert merchandiser and I just learned through experience what would look good on a woman, woman, what color would look good on her. I'd hold the fabric up to her, and then I would let my wife come in and close her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was part of the strategy then, was knowing who was the best personality or the right person to, to close the sale. So you sort of set it up and teed it up for her, and she came in and, and did it. And let me say, we were always a team. And I, I had different jobs along the way as a salesman, and I used my experience, and I was successful as a salesman until we took our show on the road, so to speak, our sewing seminars, and that's where we did really well. Right. Okay. So, Aunt Janet Stahl, back in the 70s, was very well known nationally for clothing patterns where people, so women could buy the fabric and produce these patterns or you know, produce these clothes out of patterns and you would go basically your business was going to fabric stores and demonstrating 
the the product and then they would buy the fabric from the fabric store which you would sell the patterns they would sell the fabric and so everybody everybody was happy okay that was only part of it but the but the six months we were off we would develop this pattern these patterns and and books that my wife sold and we would work with wholesalers and we would get uh, we never paid a middleman. We did our own printing, so our, our, our profit was tremendous. We cut out the middleman. We had no middleman in our business, and it was just me and my wife. So there was nobody to fall back on, nobody to blame, so we had to get it right the first time. So you flipped, when you were in the store, you would sort of set them up for the sale, and your wife would would close them by saying that looks great that's going to look great on you and they would trust her opinion because she was a woman in the seminars you flipped it because Janet was the one up giving the presentation she had written the books she had developed the pattern she was sort of the star and then explain what happened after so all these women in the fabric store they show up to watch this presentation and afterwards they come over to you so explain what your role was when you were on the road doing that in fabric stores. It was my job to not only order the merchandise and make sure I had the right products on hand at all times. We traveled in a big motor home with underneath storage, a big uh, uh, diesel motor home. We had them uh, and, and we had a number of, uh, of hosts of um, vendors that would just deal with us because we had products that the store wouldn't carry the products had to be demonstrated by my wife and my wife was so good that uh, they would at, at break time they would buy the heck out of the merchandise but it was up to me yeah but it was up to me to have the merchandise on hand and uh, and to deal with them fast because we had hundreds of women for each class and we had to keep the line moving because if, if they didn't weren't dealt with in a hurry they would lay the merchandise down and leave the store so we had to be fast <clears throat> it was kind of a complicated business but we made it look easy because we had the answers we had the merchandise so I'm going to relate that to a college coach who might have on a weekend four, five, eight families coming through and they want to make them feel personal, you know, they, they want to make that personal connection like you're talking about, but they also, they have to kind of move along quickly because they have a limited amount of time during that day. Um, so what, how did you tell which customers were the ones that were truly interested and which ones just had a lot of questions but weren't going to actually buy anything how what were some of the things you picked up on or learned how to read them or how to the little cues that they would give well i hate to say it but we're my wife and i were both very friendly and very outgoing and the secret was is to make people like us immediately get a good read on us 
That way they trusted us and they would buy our merchandise because they, they had faith in us. But we had to make them like us immediately. Just like we had to make the store owner like us, we couldn't go in there with a bad attitude because if one, if a, uh, a store out of uh, 200 stores we were doing in the fall, if one of those we made unhappy, they would go to the head man and we would be out of business. We could not afford not to be friendly and not to be prepared. We were very prepared. Get to the store two hours before the first seminar, have everything set up, all the seating, and we made it look easy. What, uh, what were some of the things you did with the customer the first time they're meeting you? What were some of the things you did to get uh, to get them to like you, to sort of connect with them right away? Because you have you had to do that in a limited amount of time. So, what were some of the things you and Janet made sure you did whenever you walked into a store for the first time or began dealing with the crowd that, of strangers for the first time? Well, the first thing I would do is introduce myself to the store manager, shake hands, and tell them what a nice store they had, whether their store was a mess or not. I, I complimented them, and I got them on my side. That way, they let us do what we wanted, they trusted us, and they would recommend us to other stores. But, yeah. but we, had to, we had to be super friendly, tell the store managers what they wanted to hear and make sure they made money, make sure they got results. That way they let us get results. Okay. So you probably made mistakes along the way to learn from uh, things you didn't do right at the start. What were some of the, the mistakes that you learned from in dealing with people? Well. I'll tell you, right from, right from day one, from the first time we went to work in the fabric store business, we were trained to be very friendly with everybody, not make anybody mad. Uh, what you're saying politely is that you didn't make mistakes. <laughs> yeah, we really, we really made no mistakes and we were prepared. We knew what the customers wanted and we had the merchandise on hand. So what, for somebody that would be just beginning to kind of develop a plan to connect with people and maybe they feel like they haven't done a good job with that in the past as a coach and now they really want to start, even though it came quite naturally for you and Janet, what would, what would be some, some beginning steps to do that, to connect with people and to kind of get them on your side? Well, to start with, I hate to say this, but not everybody has ability. Just like when you meet people during the day and you get friendly with them and you talk to them and, and maybe you have a, a little something funny to say. I mean, some people get it and some people don't. So you have to know what people you can say what to and make sure you say what they want to hear. Funny stories over the years. What are, what are some of the funnier stories that you remember happening or just, you know, all, you're on the road for six months out of the year. 
16 or 17 years, what were some of the funny things that, that happened just in interacting with people? Well, to start with, it, we worked in every state throughout the United States many times, and we knew what the people were like in every state. The people in Kansas weren't like the people in California or New York. Everybody was different, and we had to... Uh, so what would you do different for the crowd in Kansas? Just I'm going to pick some states, and you tell me... Like what you would do differently, or what kind of how would you quickly define that group of, of customers that, that made them different from everybody else? So let's start with Kansas. Uh, Kansas was a show me state, so we had to. Uh, boy. I don't know if it was any harder. We made a little less money in the middle states because they were a little more cautious and we made more money in the in, in the uh, states on the coast because the people were more aggressive okay. it was harder work but we made more money because they were easier to motivate in kansas in those states oklahoma we had to I don't know. It, it was it was just it was just a little tougher. Okay. So so different on the coast than in the Midwest. Okay. So how I want to end this with with your segment is just whatever. What advice would you give the young coach that's listening to this? The coach that's just again starting to feel like they need to be, do a better job of getting connected with people. Just give them some general life advice, professional advice that you've learned over the last 79 years? Well, number one, okay, with us, it was a customer walking through the door. Now, we knew the customer wanted to learn something and would want some of our products, so we had them. If, if I was a coach, first of all, I would maybe try to get together, get to know the parents a little bit. Maybe uh, I go to a lot of basketball and football games. Maybe talk to the parents. Just become, uh, let them know you're thinking about them. And then you wouldn't recruit a kid to begin with if they weren't good. So right away, you have something to say to the kid. Look at. We, we, we think you're good for our program or you wouldn't be recruiting them. I would just say what they want to hear. Try not to say anything negative. Make them think they're going to do well. And really, you wouldn't be recruiting them unless you thought they could do well. So, so get that through to them. And, and get it through to the... Uh, it's a, a great campus. Uh, we're, the coaches are great. Introduce them to the coaches. But the coaches have to be friendly, in my opinion. That changes the kid's mind right off the bat. I hear it all the time when I go to games. Oh, they were so nice with us in, in, uh, in, in Florida, is an example. The coaches were so wonderful. I'm going to go there. But... If, if they don't, if the coach or the person recruiting them weren't friendly with them, they, it, it turned them off right away. 
And I've talked to a lot of parents with that. They, no, I don't want my son going there. And, and it, even, it could be a great school, but they had a bad vibe about the, they had a bad, bad vibe about the coach, you know. I mean, every coach is tough, but you have to make them think that you're maybe personally, uh, I don't know how to say that, but you, you want every kid to do in your program to do well. And you have to let them know that, in my opinion. So that was my uncle, Jack Stahl, and his advice on marketing, sales, customer relationships, and and just a lot to learn there and a lot to steal from him. And as you may have heard from the, uh, from the audio and the interview, we were doing this poolside at an outdoor restaurant at this hotel where we were having this family reunion. Uh, so you're going to hear uh, more noise and more background uh, as we go into the next interview. Uh, with Max Tudor, and as I mentioned, he his specialty and really his life has been spent in education internationally, but in the process of that has had to lead people and has has had to build staffs and build them up and, and really has learned what to look for in the right people that you would want to build your career around and your reputation and program around. And so that's what I wanted to lean on him for was advice for coaches on what they need to look for in the people that they hire and the people they surround themselves, the organization that is being built around them. That is his specialty, and I think you're going to get a lot of insights on leadership and and how to build that type of a program that you want through the advice from Dr. Max Tudor, who we'll go to right now. Okay, so Max, run me through your professional career starting after college. Graduated in 1957 uh, with a teaching degree from from Fresno State University. I taught one year, and I've spent 55 years in education and educational sales management. One year of teaching, the rest of it administration. 14 years, I was the uh, regional vice president for the 13 Western States for Hardcore Brace, a publishing company. Which, in the case of coaches and familiar, is a publishing company of? Well, uh, Hardcore Brace, um, but it was uh, the testing division. Um, We had had the state contract for state testing in California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah and Hawaii and the Western 13 states. So, prior to that, you want to talk about Spain? Well, in the uh, school work, um, I spent eight years in Mexico running American schools and 14 years in Spain running American schools. What sort of what I wanted to talk to you about was managing people because when you're in the, in the classroom, the rest of it, 50-some in administration in some capacity, not necessarily in the school, but just over, you know, even over uh, on the private sector and the company side. So can you give me kind of some ground rules or, or some, some hard and fast rules for managing and getting the most out of the people that, that reported to you and looked up to you as, as their leader? Well, of course. You must be prepared uh, in whatever field you're in. Uh, you know, I'm talking about educationally prepared. 
to know what it is you're supposed to be doing, intellectually know. The reality of it is that um, a lot of those people, and many of them much brighter than I ever was, uh, didn't know how to manage people. The single most important thing is how to manage people, whether it's teachers, sales reps, students, parents, faculty, whatever it is. Coaches. Coaches, exactly. You think the coaches don't have a problem with university uh, administrators? Of course they do. The priorities that they, uh, you know, in the major universities that have successful sports programs, they can write their own ticket. But someone years ago uh, made that happen by being successful, provided a lot of revenue for the university, and paid their own way. College football, basketball, and and uh, football coaches and other coaches on very highly competitive schools earn six times or ten times more than the university president does. Why is that? It's revenue. Why do they make the revenue? Because they've inspired kids to play well, they have developed winning teams, and they have brought their communities and alumni along with them. That's people management. I don't care what you call it, that's what it is. So when you first started, what were, do you remember some of the early mistakes you made or mistakes that you learned from early in your career that, that you may have, um, or just in general, things that you've seen other leaders do wrong or incorrectly? Um, since I made no mistakes, Dan, <laughs> uh, uh, I made mine, I'm sure, but I don't think any major ones. I had good mentors. I was a quick learner. Uh, I'm a people person. Uh, I was taught early that the key was managing people. Uh, why is it so hard for managers or administrators to understand that their success is based on the productivity of the people under them? Why is that hard to that concept hard to grasp? I don't understand it. I never would have been successful as a principal, as a superintendent, as a sales VP, you know, vice president for the third, if my people had not been successful. So my job was to nurture them in every way possible, reward them, help them, assist them, motivate them to be successful because my success was based on them, period. Didn't matter how smart I was or how dumb I was or what a good or effective or ineffective manager, their productivity is what made my reputation. Somebody taught me that. I didn't learn it on my own. And so I would encourage anybody listening who is managing people, if you want to be successful, take care of your people. Okay, so you've you've talked about kind of devoting yourself or pouring time into uh, the people that are under you. Talk to the person that's listening to this that might be an assistant coach. So they're not the ones in charge, but they maybe want to be someday. They want to be the head coach. What would your advice be to them as they're kind of establishing themselves and their habits and what they look to do in their career, but it's still early. They're not the leader. How could they develop 
or prepare to be the leader? Good question. Um, I think they have to be smart enough to, first of all, you have to be loyal to your boss. If you can't be loyal, then get out, go somewhere else. Because if you're not loyal and subversive, you should be fired. So be, you know, be mature enough to say, I'm sorry, coach, I, I don't agree with you philosophically, I'm gonna move on. Right. And find some, some, find some other mentor or somebody you can respect and learn from. But learn from people. Learn from what they do well, learn what they, from what they do wrong. Uh, I think somebody taught me that. And uh, I had good mentors, not that they were perfect, I learned some bad things too, but I somehow was smart enough to know, don't do that. It didn't work, so don't do it. Um, I want to talk about one thing uh, uh, related to this. Uh, I got to Madrid as the uh, headmaster of the American school, and um, because of my predecessor's lack of management skills, he was in effect asked to go. And I got there, and one of the most important things annually was a worldwide head, head of schools conference. And the board told me when they hired me, you can't go this year. I said, why not? Because your predecessor abused those travel privileges. I said, okay, then I'll prove to you that, uh, that I deserve to go. But the first year, I didn't go. Six years later, I flew the entire faculty and the board to a conference from Madrid to Morocco. I had been able to convince the board the value of in-service training and conferences. That takes management skills. And it takes somebody smart enough, I'm not the only one, but smart enough to know that you've got to develop confidence in the board that you're not a boondoggle, that these conferences and the things you do are of value. Right. So that might be one way that a younger coach could establish and begin to learn those skills is making a case for something within the program that maybe the head coach would want to do and, and maybe going through those same steps that you just mentioned. Is that fair enough? Yeah, you're correct. Um, in Mexico City, I was a young high school principal during the years when uh, we were literally growing marijuana under the football bleachers. That was that period. And the United okay, so wait, hold on. You, you, go back. More, more. Well, what's going on with that story? Well, in 1965 to 73, uh, what was going on in the United States is university students were rebelling. They were occupying university president's offices. If you look back in history, it was a difficult time in our educational system. Mexico, overseas, was no different. And when I said growing marijuana, you could buy at the front gate of the school in Mexico City, you could buy a marijuana joint for a peso, which was eight U.S. cents at the time. So, uh, we had our marijuana plant. Um, but um, uh, I've forgotten why I got into that. But, <laughs> I asked uh, you. Yeah, I okay. kind of took you off topic. Yeah. Sorry about but, that. But, but you know, um, you just have to deal and cope with those kinds of things. And um, 
I was able, I actually, during that period, expelled, not suspended. We suspended, I don't know how many kids, but expelled about 50 kids for possession of marijuana mainly uh, on campus. And it changed the careers of many parents. We had the support, which we had to, we had to develop. We had the support from the ambassador and the business community. I met with the Chamber of Commerce and the ambassador, telling them we had to have a zero tolerance of drugs on our campus. We met with the Mexican authorities, where they agreed we would handle the problem on campus, they would handle it off campus for us. And the fear there was, you go to a Mexican jail, you're there without any representation for who knows how long. Right. So we had to manage the situation. That took a lot of convincing and a lot of hours to make that happen. But when you expel kids, you change not only their lives, you change their parents' lives. Some families were sent home right. by their companies or by the embassy. So again, management of people. What's best for the institution? What's best for the kids? And there are disciplinary measures um, that schools must and universities have to do for the well-being of the university or the school or the team. Exactly. It can't all be individual. There's got to be several levels. Of, anyway. Oh, I, I know what I was going to say. In Mexico City, uh, I had uh, Bear Bryant twice as our sports banquet speaker. I had Duffy Dougherty from Michigan State twice. Those were two of the most famous coaches in America at the time. We had um, uh, Daryl Royal, uh, and we had a couple of others. The names don't come to me at the moment. We had the best coaches in America be our banquet speaker. We were building a, uh, uh, our, our football program, but also a swimming program. And those guys came uh, and um, helped us raise money. Um, uh, we were able, again, through persuasion and people management, uh, none of them charged us a fee. They came because we were able to put together uh, free first-class airfares for them and their wives, uh, two days in Mexico City free, uh, and then three or four days in Acapulco free. Yeah, that took, again, people management, right? Sure. sure. And uh, so, anyway. So, ment you mentioned mentors earlier, uh, and I think every coach, especially younger coaches, like to develop a list of mentors that will help them in their career. And there's even coaching organizations that that really try to foster mentorship programs. What what would be your advice? Who should you seek out as a mentor or a set of mentors early in, in a career? But what type of people or what, what different types of points of view should you be looking for? Oh, wow. Good question. I haven't thought about that for a long time, but um, uh, my first principal, the only year I taught in California, his name was Jack Ragsdale, and um, he did a lot of interesting things. Uh, I learned good and bad from him. But one of the things he did that was, I thought, very effective for him. But everybody's different. You know, what I might do because of my personality might not work for you. Right. You know, it's all very personal. Sure. But Jack would be in the teacher's lunchroom every day that there were teachers in there having lunch. 
to give them the opportunity to talk to him informally without taking time out to make an appointment or that that was that worked very well be available to your people be present person face to face another thing i learned somewhere along the way is a, a very common practice overseas is uh, a good number, half or more of the kids arrive by private vehicle to school. They're dropped off by chauffeurs or parents or somebody. Um, I always was out there at 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30, whenever they arrived, to greet every parent and every kid, whether it was cold, rainy, snowy, or whatever. That gives parents the same opportunity to say, hey, Max, I've been meaning to ask you. Huh? It, and it also shows concern and interest in their children and in what you're doing. That worked very well. I, I didn't dream that up. I learned it from somebody. Um, I, you know, I think that a lot of it, Dan, is having that, somebody in some university course, having that gut feeling of what's right and wrong and what you should do, right. and and also that gut street feeling when there's something wrong. If you're in the teacher's room when they're uh, a lounge, when they're there for lunch, and nobody talks to you, you better take notice. Sure, there's sure. some reason for that. Right. You talked about inspiration and mentoring, and that's sort of the positive side of managing people. What would your advice be when it's time to confront somebody? Or let's say there's an, there's underperforming going on under you from somebody from a, somebody that you're in charge of. How, how would you, what, what advice would you give or general rules would you give for confronting or correcting or even disciplining somebody that, that you're in charge of that, that your success depends on? That's a great question and a lot of people fail in that area. I've learned through good and bad experiences that you should confront it right away and if the person has potential you offer the support and training or whatever you need to do and give them an opportunity to grow if that but a, but have a drop dead date it can't go on forever right. because in the case of k-12 education and probably coaching as well you're going to hurt the student or the athlete, you've got to have a drop dead date and, that and, and, fixed and get fixed by, and you offer all the support, and then get rid of them. Tough decision, but in, in K-12 particularly, you do more damage. Damn. Latest research is that if a youngster in elementary school has an ineffective teacher for two years in a row. It takes three years of effective teachers to overcome that. Not likely to happen. And if you have three years in a row, the child will never recover. That is criminal. And administrators let that happen and go on. Oh, she'll get better, he'll get better. They don't. You've got to bite the bullet and get rid of them. All right, so as we wrap it up, any parting advice, anything to do with managing people that we haven't talked about yet that you feel would be important for a coach to know? Yeah, I think you, a part of the motivation of your people is tell them, celebrate the good things they're doing, not the bad things. You handle the bad things privately, one-on-one. -on -one. 
but as a faculty or as a team or as a coaching staff, you celebrate the successes. Most of us forget that. We focus on what's wrong. That has to be dealt with, of course, but the focus should be on, this, on the good things that you're doing. So coach, here's what I would advise doing now that you've heard both gentlemen lay out their advice based on their long, successful professional careers. The question you have to ask yourself is this, what am I doing right now that's not working, that seemed to work for these two that I need to change in, my, in the way that I run my program, in the way that I lead or construct a staff or sell my program? Those, those are really the key questions that you need to figure out and then change. Change the way that you're doing things because anytime you get the chance to, to talk to anybody else that is more experienced, whether that is a more experienced coach or two people from the outside world like Max and Jack that can teach you things about how to, how to lead people, how to sell to people, how to relate better to people. What are you gonna do differently? What needs to change? I'll leave you with that question. If I can help in any way, my email address is dan at dantutor.com. You can also go to the website to see how we work with college coaches and their staffs and athletic departments and make them better, more successful, smarter recruiters. A lot of free resources on our blog at dantutor.com, so check that out. And most of all, tell your coaching friends, especially those within your department, to subscribe and listen to the podcast because the bigger that our community gets, uh, the more rich and, and interesting the conversations are going to be. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. Coach, have a great week out there. Every days that fly to thee we sing with our glasses raised on high let's drink a toast as each of us recalls ivy covered professors in ivy covered halls turn on the spigot pour the beer and swig it and gaudi get a tour Here's two parties we tossed To the games that we lost We shall claim that we won them someday To the girls young and sweet To the spacious back seat Of our roommates beat up Chevrolet To the beer and Benzedrine To the way that the Dean tried so hard To be pals with us all To excuses we fibbed To the papers we cribbed From the genius who lived down the hall To the tables down at Maury's, wherever that may be. Let us drink a toast to all we love the best. We will sleep through all the lectures and cheat on the exams and we'll pass and be forgotten with the rest. Oh, soon we'll be out amid the cold world's strife. Soon we'll be sliding down the razor blade of life. Ooh. But as we go our sordid separate ways, 
we shall ne'er forget thee, thou golden college days. Hearts full of youth, hearts full of truth, six parts gin to one part vermouth.